The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring. As tech becomes more central in life, the things that make us human and that connect us are more important than ever. And we're lucky to be joined today by a leader in the space of bringing heart and soul to technology. Here in Aotearoa for the SparkLab Future State Festival, Danielle Credit Cobb is the founder of Google's Empathy Lab and grandmother, a non-profit. She is a trailblazing force in empathic design with two decades of work grounded equally in science and soul, having transformed some of the largest organisations and tech companies in the world. At Google, Danielle worked with teams from AI and BARD to devices, inclusion and crisis response. Her skill of braiding together scientists, artists, poets, writers, ecologists, indigenous leaders, human rights and land activists led to the company's most radical collaborations. Prior to the lab, Danielle ran special projects for Google X, Alphabet's Moonshot Factory, and was previously the youngest senior executive on Apple's graphic design team, working on the top product launches of all time, from the Intel Mac and MacBook Pro to the global introductions of iPhone and iPad. So, um, thank you very much for joining us here today, Danielle. Tanakwe. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for bringing me into your into your sweet area of sharing. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of so. Tell us about you know that you've worked at such amazing companies. Um, you know, re- re- really like the standard bearers of um, you know the, the modern consumer age. Hey, tell us about your journey first into graphic design. What made you um, interested in that space? You know what? I was working... Also, I have to say too, it's um, Steve Jobs said that, you know, you can kind of connect the dots looking backwards and it all makes sense. (laughs) But like in terms of my actual career journey, it was far more of like a spelunking thing where I was like groping around in the dark trying to figure my way. So it looks good in retrospect, but you know, you know the journey. (laughs) It's far more Alice in Wonderland than something that you plan in a logical, rational way. Um, But in terms of graphic design, so it's interesting. I actually worked in um, kind of social justice communications when I started out in London. I was working at this place called St. Luke's and they were really into um, movements and culture. Some of that, of course, is classic brand work, but all the work I did was for the Central Office of Information. And it was like adult literacy and getting young people out to vote and getting minorities to vote and all these like really beautiful, how do you harness the power of media to support people in great moments of change? And how do we kind of help people rise in those moments and transition? And so it felt really cool to be 
like a bit of a termite in the woodwork of media in that way. Um, and then what was funny was Nike heard about my work and, and Wyden and Kennedy's agency uh, that worked for Nike. And so I was working on a documentary in London and started talking to them. And at that time, it was very like Naomi Klein, no logo. And I was like, no, I don't want to work for Nike. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're cool. And maybe I'll wear your shoes. But like, no, I was 25. So f- full of that. And um what was cool was I went to work there because they were having conversations about telling stories a different way and having different influences for design. And Tinker Hatfield, the more I learned about him at Nike, I was really moved by their design philosophy and what they brought in. And then you hear about the kind of waffle irons that like Phil Knight and Bowerman had. And, you know, it's like, and then I drank the Kool-Aid and I was in. But um, but being at Wyden and Kennedy, they... My creative director there was Todd Waterbury, and he still is a dear friend to me. But he opened my understanding of design. It was something that I, in that kind of young way, a lover of art, a lover of culture, a lover of the human heart. And at the same time, I was like, oh, I don't know about advertising. I had a little like, you know, (laughs) like, I'm not sure about my place in the world with this. Um, But what I found about graphic design and specifically about design that Todd taught me, he told me the story of what design really is, that it's not about form, it's not just about beauty or patina, that actually there's a deeper resonance and soul to it. And the example he gave me was he talked about the most, I asked him what the most beautiful design he thought was, and he described this um, door handle that had won a UK design award, and it was for... um, for the blind. And so it had braille on the inside in such a way that when you open the door to the room, you were both reading the room you were entering and opening and crossing the threshold at the same time. And that idea where the like, everything kind of slips into this like alignment where like form and function are one, the movement is one, the enablement is one. It just felt like a really beautiful space of service. So that was what called me into graphic design. And then, of course, I just love beauty. I grew up, my mom's an artist and my dad was a surgeon, but loved classical music. And so I just feel like in my house, I was like drenched with this kind of like rich texture of like the beauty of the beauty of the senses, sight and sound. And design for me had like a sense of harmonics to it that I just felt. And design is a language that communicates to everyone. And Art may have been that, you know, many, many, many years ago, but not always now. <laughs> not everyone looks at an Eve Kaim Blue and says, oh, I get it. No, no, you need to have done some kind of, you know, postgraduate education or to, to clock yeah. a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but both, maybe. Indeed. Yeah. And, and the kind of projects you worked on with Nike, like I think um, the, the, the Jordan shoes um, and that idea of... Um, you know, expressing the feeling of flight. Like, I think, you know, lots of people interact with these things, but knowing those deeper ideas behind them is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the the interesting thing about, um, and, you know, I was just a, I was a baby thing when I was working there. So I worked on a lot of stuff like Jordan and, um, and you know, Nike New York City, which is really powerful work. But whatever it was, there was what I loved about Nike was that there was this, I mean, in the Colin Kaepernick work is like mm. the like fuck yeah of now, you know, or a couple years ago. But I feel like there was this spirit that was always about something greater. And it wasn't just great branding. It really was about what does it mean to 
to really get behind if you have a body or an athlete, you know, mm-hmm. and I love the the ad of the middle school, middle school kid who's a bit out of shape running. That's greatness. There's a spirit of kind of the resilience of humanity that can be expressed as that kid. Or like, I love the one of the like, the woman running. It's literally, you just saw this like kind of hip shot and it's like, this is a 51 year old butt. I was like, fuck yeah, that's amazing. But there's something about that that's just what it means to rise wherever you're at and whatever you're rising into, that you're rising. That for me felt felt good inside. And I feel like with Jordan, it's like that man is just one of those archetypal humans who's on like, you know, the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. His hero's journey is just a wild one. And his wingspan is massive. And the fact that he like took the game from a space of like technical mastery to style, you know, and then tried to play other sports. It's like Team Jordan was just this like real kind of pantheon of superhuman people. And I think what's cool is watching, you know, like it's got to be the shoes, like the Mars Blackman work, the Spike Lee did was just move my soul and was just, it, that stuff is that's social justice and social action wrapped in like fucking cool energy. And I think that's what's powerful about what some of these things tap into as well as their vehicles for truth. Mm-hmm. So Jordan and MJ at that time that I was working there, which was, I think, 8,000 years ago, um, <laughs> it was a real moment for him. And I was excited as a young one to kind of bask in what it meant to speak human story in that way. And moving from one kind of, um, you know, huge brand coming into its moment, uh, you know, because Jordan did pave the way for so much of what it means to be a celebrity athlete and own shares mm. um, and their own success and, 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 and own their story, which is so cool. And then coming to Apple, which, you know, you were there before it became the Apple of today. And in that pivotal moment, uh, leading up to the iPhone and the iPad, which, you know, um, Mm. lots of people talk about things changing the world. That changed the world. I mean, what was it like to be there and be part of the design team and and thinking at that time? It was extraordinary, honestly. It was a... It was one of those, like, surreal kind of eras in my life that's, you know, tinged with, like, the hours were so long, the work was so intense, like, the fire was so hot... But it was formative and I knew it at the time. I remember being like, other people would just be like, this is crazy, I can't do this. And and I just, I knew what it was as it was happening. And I had so much belief in Steve. And I, I grew, I mean, like my first computer was an Apple IIGS, like with the little rainbow apple. And it was signed by Waz, which is kind of bananas. But it was like, I remember the gateway that that was. And Steve says, you know, uh, that these machines are a bicycle for the mind, but I just felt it as a portal. It was like Carmen San Diego, like lit me up. So I had this real, it was like Apple was part of my childlike wonder. So when I joined there and first of all, as like a, ironically, somehow I'm like a tech person, but I'm like terrible at math. Like I'm not a technical person. I'm a conceptual person. I'm a designer. I'm a researcher. So it's like this funny thing. That's why I like being called a, when I founded the Empathy Lab, I was like, oh, it's such a relief to just be a founder because I don't have to identify with like one discipline. But when I, 
the the kind of seed of creativity was always quite quite strong with me, and I just never thought I could work at Apple because I wasn't an engineer, and I feel like that's a theme I've come up against a lot in my career where I don't think I can do something because I don't think I'm qualified. And actually, when I end up there, I'm at home. And at Apple, I very much felt at home. The creative community, the deep care and kind of fanatical detail, which sometimes can be this like neurotic compulsion, but also is just this like, I am going to sink into the deepest levels of this and deeply care about them because I know if this if the person on the other side can never articulate the way in which we've looked after these things, that they'll feel the care, they'll feel nested in that care. And so I just love that spirit. And it was just this like quiet ceremony always, like the unwrapping of the box and even like the design of things and the way they would kind of gently reveal themselves in the interface. Like I just, I loved Apple and I still do. It was like a, when I left, it was a kind of a hard transition to go from being inside to going outside. And at the same time, um, also because Steve had, had, um, had died that year, which was just part of the transition. But anyway, back to the original, <laughs> like joining Apple, I was just so thrilled to be there because I felt like I was in creative community and I joined at this really interesting moment. I started working on the advertising and then I moved into the graphic design group up in Cupertino or Supertino as we called it. And when I joined, it was Mac and PC was actually the first thing I did. And it was, we were relaunching the Mac because it finally had an Intel chip, which meant that it could really step up and be in the game against PCs um, or with PCs, I should say, in a peace chief way. Um, but what was interesting was it was a real moment for Steve. The iPod was really successful and it was starting to like, we worked on the photo iPad and the video iPod. And then it was time for Mac to relaunch. And it was just this powerful moment of speaking for what it is to be different and be creative and make and make easily and also not be like one of my favorite things that Apple stood for was that this is for the rest of us. And that like, instead of making computers work the way we, um, sorry, instead of making us work the way computers do, why don't we make them work the way we are? And there was just this sense of like, what it means to align with the grain of our human being. And I was just, I was just in love with that. And so it was, um, it was both hard and easy to like, kind of wholly devote myself to that work. And so we, we launched Mac and PC globally, and that was something that I was really proud to be a deep part of. And then we moved towards the launch of the iPhone and then the iPad. It was like I had a really, the aura of my run there was bright. And I just was really lucky. That's just like the universe smiling on my timing, you know? Mm. Yeah. And to be part of a company where the experience and the way it will make the you know, customer, user, the but you know, the person at the other end feel, you, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> fe feel and how it mm. will fit into their life. And, mm. you know, really thinking about that end of things where, you know, so much technology and so much of everything um, is very much about what the makers think and what they want to do. And mm. everything else kind of comes so much, so much later. And you'd think that after the success of Apple on those things, and, you know, the growth of so much design thinking discipline, there'd still be more of it. But most technology still doesn't take that approach, right? Isn't that funny? Mm. Yeah. I think it's very bizarre. It's like 
everyone wanted to replicate the success of Apple. And it's like, well, the way that you do that, like Steve would talk about like Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan in meetings. And like when they were doing the Beatles deal where they had, you know, all of that um, library brought onto iTunes, like he cried in that meeting. Like he was a deeply feeling person. He used all of his human spectrum and it takes, it's funny. Some people take people take different lessons out of the Apple playbook. And I think the one that can sometimes be overlooked or that is lost to the kind of strategy of history is the deep, deep feeling that was implied in all of that. And like Steve and Johnny had lunch at Cafe Max every day, like the deep human relationship that was part of that extraordinary era of technology. And Apple's still doing awesome stuff. But I just like that period, watching those relationships watching them have their messy moments, hearing about the repair of those messy moments. Like it was just all happening in a very real way. And I feel like especially as technology and machine intelligence kind of advances, it's like the idiosyncrasies and the beauties and the deeper nuances of the human relating that goes into these things. We feel that on the other side, like you feel the love of vinyl and cover flow. You feel, and it's like skeuomorphism aside, because I'm not a fan of that. It's like, I think that skeuomorphism is often sometimes this like accidental byproduct of going to the feeling place of something. And I just think that my, in my time at Apple with the colleagues I was with, it was so special. I just, I still love all of them. And it's like, because there was a way of relating with each other and to the work. And the cool thing about Apple was that it was never about you. You never mistook your place, like ego, there was pride and there was like a deep sense of like, put it all in the work. But there wasn't a sense of ego because it was just a company culture that didn't have space for that. We knew we were new. We knew we were the wood behind a single arrow in the time that I was there. And it was a relief to just pour yourself into the design work, to just have a place for me personally. I found it was a place to put the care and feeling that I had as such as like deep reservoir inside of me but I didn't like really know where it belonged. And because I was younger, it would show up in other parts of my life where I was like, that's a bit too much (laughs) or that's a bit too intense. And it was a place to put that. And I think like, again, it's why when we look at our design processes now, it's like, how do you make room for that to come through? Because actually that's like a deeply human channel experience where you're the hollow bone in the words of like Roshi Joan Halifax or you're the bamboo flute in the words of other... Buddhist masters. And it's like, how do you empty so that what really is the juice for other people comes through? Because you just, you always feel it on the other side. It's like, you know, um, I had this, I had this cup that it's funny. I don't know where it is now because all of my nice like pottery things I had to put away because my daughter's three and I was just like in fear for them, you know, like these things I've gathered over my life as a magpie person, just sticks and threads and whatever. But I had this cup that, um, had the fingerprint of the maker in it. It was like, you know, not that they described it like that, but I noticed that it was there and it was like, you know, done on purpose or not fixed on purpose. And I just found as I drank a cup of tea out of that cup, that there was this timelessness to like the maker and me and the gesture of that, like the flower blooming from the tree where you're just like, oh, it's all one thing. How rad. (laughs) Mm. And I 
love the way we'll, we'll move we'll move off off Apple now, as I'm sure you know. One of the hardest things about working at Apple in that time must be having to talk about it all the time. <laughs> but uh, but like the thing that you mentioned there about about um, you know history has missed the big theme. I think a lot of people read mm. the Walter Isaacson um, yeah. biography and took from it that if you were really disagreeable, you were a genius. I and know, right? They missed the fact that there was this like inspiration and gathering the purpose and people believed in what they were doing and that's why people went past um, reality. But it's quite good that's kind of worn off a little bit now. Agree. Yeah, when that book first came out, it was like all of us that were working there are were doing different things, but we're there. We're like, this is really weird. It's like a fun house mirror. Like the stories are true, but the perspective is strange. And anyway, but it's a it's a it's a beautiful book. It's always a glimpse, right? Um, but yeah, the we see the world uh, not as it is, but as we are. And I found that was very true for that moment. People took from Steve what they wanted to justify how they want it to be, or you know, they kind of mistook. It's like you <laughs> you can't take. Um, the shadow lessons without the light. You can't take the light lessons without the shadow. But it's a really tricky thing when you try to selectively carve, um, when you don't take the whole human in. Like one of the, actually, this is a story that I don't know how many people on earth know. And it's a special one because I'll just diverge for a second. So Ramdas is a dear friend and teacher of mine. He actually um, died a few years ago, but I spent the last year of his life with him because I went over to make a film with him. And then this whole miraculous explosion of my life happened where like I ended up falling in love with his caregiver as I was like a student of Ramdas and spending time with him and, and then, you know, decided to get married to that caregiver and like, you know, our daughter who is Ramdas's godchild was born. It was like this whole trip where I was like, I did not expect this. This is a great rewriting of my life. <laughs> but the reason I bring that up is because um, Ramdas and Larry Brilliant were friends. And Larry Brilliant is actually, he was um, a doctor for the World Health Organization. And he was basically the chief of the movement to cure smallpox. So he's spoken a lot recently about the pandemic and things like that, but an extraordinary scientist and a person who had a deeply spiritual experience with Ram Dass, they went and um, were with this man, an Indian saint called Neem Karoli Baba. And what was really cool was that Steve Jobs in that same timeline, but missed Larry. Actually, I think they connected in India and Larry in his book, Sometimes Brilliant, joked about how he was like, he was this dirty, nasty, hippie person. <laughs> um, and there are all these stories about how um, some of the sadhus walked around the Chedi and were like, computer, 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 and they didn't even know what that was then. And there's all this like kind of trippy mysticalness that Steve walked with all of that. That was very present in his reality. You saw it in the interfaces, you know, like he, he wrote, um, he would talk about ROM. It's like, he, <laughs> it's not random access memory. They just made that work. But the concept was, how are we speaking? How are we creating something that actually like that hollow bone carries something more meaningful for the fabric of humanity? And anyway, so back to my, my <laughs> digression story. So when Steve was dying, there were many people that came and sat with him and he called many people to him. But the beautiful thing is Neem Karoli Baba, he had gone to India and he missed him. Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji had died, um, I think the year before. So he just missed him and he was pissed. <laughs> But Larry had a sweater of his because Larry was very close with um, Ramdas and the folks that were there at that time. And that was a sweater that was underneath his head. 
when he was in his final days. And I just feel like those are the stories of Steve. They give me the chills because they anchor and orient me towards the invisible layers of things that would never make it into Walter's book or any of the strategies that we see kind of playing out in the product work of Apple. But they were in alive inside of the person who brought it into being. And I feel like the way that that relates to us and all of us now is what is alive inside of us that needs to come through the work, whether implicitly or explicitly, because it's the thing that actually will be felt as the aliveness in other people's experience. Like for me, that is design. <laughs> you didn't think I was going to come back to that, did you? I made it back. It was uh, it was great. And it made me think of how, <laughs> you know, in the same way that people try to draw just, you know, the, the <laughs> light lesson and not the shadow lesson, mm. people take, you know, they'll take in the current, like, Silicon Valley uh, exuberance around psychedelics. They'll take just the psychedelics without <laughs> the years of spiritual searching, which was, you know, although you can <laughs> I find... people can see my hands right yeah. now. I'm doing the praise <laughs> hands in the air. I'm like, preach, you yes. Can, you can find the Steve Jobs quote <laughs> saying, you know, LSD unlocks the brain, but actually it's on the back of years and years of spiritual searching that, mm. um, that that's all grounded in, right? And yeah, so, you got it. Yeah, taking... And that's that's that emphatic design, isn't it? Like it taking is. the whole the whole thing and not just the top layer. Yeah. And actually just because And that brought it back to design too. <laughs> I know. Well played, sir. Well played. Hey. <laughs> what yeah. um what what's actually lovely is um that same Indian saint named Curly Baba, he said, um, acid will take you into the room with the divine, but it'll kick you out. You only get to stay for so long. So the whole challenge of the path is you can, you can connect with source. You can be taken into that intelligence with like ayahuasca. You can be taken into the force that beats our hearts and connects the whole universe. And you have to do the work to live that consciousness. And that's where you have to do the psychological integration work. You have to do the spiritual work. You have to have your feet firmly on the path to be able to bring that into your daily experience because that's the map. It's like that just takes us to the place so that we know the map and then we have to find our own way. So yeah, I appreciate that you totally grok that because that's the challenge. It's easy to want to run away or like I've heard of so many people that go to ceremony and are like searching for their next insight. And it's like, that's not what that doorway is used for. <laughs> mm -mm, it's not a strategy session. <laughs> yeah, totally. Don't bring a whiteboard to your psychedelic session with your guide. <laughs> that will be the title of this podcast now. <laughs> that's awesome. And we'll be back in a moment with Danielle to learn about joining Google, starting the Google Empathy Lab, and what's next. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step -step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're with Danielle Kretik-Cobb talking about 
Google Empathy Lab. So tell us about going to Google and joining the Moonshot Brigade, you know, the the the, the mm-hmm. Google X division. Because they're re- that's also like an amazingly storied place in kind of all of business and creativity lore. Mm. So it's interesting because I while I was still working at Apple, I was on a plane ride and I was doing that thing where you were sitting next to someone and like they're getting their food or their drink and they're working on your laptop and you're like, you're doing the same thing and you're trying not to like peep their screen at the same time. You're like, well, that looks interesting. And so anyway, about an hour into a six hour flight, um, I chatted with this man, Andy Byrne, who was part of the starting force of Creative Lab and has been at Google forever. And he's an extraordinary human being that I love very much. And he... Uh, was like, well, if you ever, if you ever want to join Google and at the time, I was like, no, I love Apple. Never. I'm a lifer. And that was interesting is like Steve died and things changed and my life changed. My brother actually died a year before Steve. And so it was just big life transition. And I was like, all right, am I going to be here forever or is life calling me somewhere else? And so life didn't call me directly to Google. I took a little time off. I actually lived on Kauai and um, just fell in love with the deeper layers of Hawaii as well. And um, that's a subject for another thing. But um, what was interesting was they called me and or texted or emailed or something. They sent a pigeon and <laughs> and I, or I should say an owl, not a pigeon, but anyway, a bird of choice. And it was this interesting thing where I was like, I have heard so many wild things about Google X and Creative Lab and just Google in general. This was like 2011. And so it was just a wild place of invention. And its culture was so different to, to Apple, just incredibly, you know, another force of technology, but in a very different vector, very different spirit, very different grounding. It was engineering. My brother and I used to joke, he was a computer science engineer, that I could never work at Google because of my impoverished math skills. So it was this kind of like dare where I was like, I wonder if I could and how would that be? And when I got there, I was like, oh dear, this is not a place of design. This these are not my people. And, but at the same time, I remember like posters that were like, keep Google weird and like people in wizard outfits. And I was like, this place is fucking crazy. And I love that because I felt this like explosion of human spirit that at Apple, everything was like perfect. And I felt like I kind of had to be perfect. And like, (laughs) as a human, I was like, okay, that's something I want to (laughs) unlearn. And being at Google, it was just this like, you know, there were these like bikes that eight people could ride and that just everything was this riot of primary colors, which at first I was like, oh, this is so garish. (laughs) Like why? And then what was lovely, there was something that came with it. I remember Sergey and Larry talking about, this is not a conventional company and we do not intend to become one. And I was like, fuck yeah. I like the spirit of Google. And then Also, the way that they talked about their invention and their innovation strategy was let the thousand flowers bloom and then collect a bouquet. And that fit really beautifully with the saying that Jack Kornfield, um, a Buddhist teacher, says, which is, we tend to the part of the garden that we can touch. And so I joined Google X, honestly, because I was like, it is both very mysterious and very shiny. And I love that. So I just wanted to be in. I was like, I want to be in the nerdy, super cool club with all the people that like are on Nova and like, you know, just these like wildly planet sized brains. And I'm a space and a star nerd too. And it was like right next door to NASA and we could swim in their pool. And I was convinced that like 
I didn't know how that worked, but I was like, it's going to be like cocoon. I'm going to go swimming in the NASA pool. I'm going to get smarter. I'm going to work at Google X and I'm going to drink the filtered water and I'm going to be more interesting and expansive as a human being. And I don't know if that happened, but being there, I was just exposed to the real raw scientific kind of prowess of technology being exposed to the deep, deep engineering and kind of inventive computational minds was just another love affair for me. Like, I just love being around brains like that, probably because they remind me of my dad and my brother. But it was like just being in that ether was so juicy for me. And then what ended up happening after working on some really cool stuff, like I worked with Adrian Troy, this incredible AI mind, who's just this deeply feeling, loving human. And these are the things where on the outside of Google, you don't get to see the kind of messy wet lab stuff that's like these humans and their families or the like shit they're going through in their lives and what that is as these like great things are getting made. And I love that contrast of like, what does it look like on the outside? What's going out? And then what's the, what's the in, what's the inner dwelling experience of that? And so I was fascinated by that working on AI stuff, uh, working on other kind of advanced technology stuff. And what was interesting is when I was at Apple, I was working on like products that were kind of close to being already. Like the deepest I got was software interface after being in the graph or graphic design group. I worked on the iPad software stuff. And it was like going to Google, it was like, no, 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 we're in the core technology. We are in the sensors. We are in the materials. Like I kind of felt like I got to go to the atomic and bit layer of things, which for me was just really juicy because it feels like you're working with origin of species type stuff, especially like where I've grown into AI over the last decade. Being part of the origin with those minds was just so expansive for me. That is a mind altering drug. <laughs> and um, so what I loved about that was that. And then also, interestingly, that was the limitation. So the birth of the empathy lab was, I have all these incredible minds around me that kind of are disconnected from the neck down when it comes from bringing your soul through the door. It's like almost like you would badge in and it would be left outside. And then the kind of hyper-rational, logical parts of ourselves would be what would solve problems or determine problems, ask questions, determine problems and find solutions. And it's like, that just doesn't work when you're designing for the complexity of the human being. And for me, I cared so deeply about the emotional levels of our experience, spiritual levels of our experience, however we come to talk about that. And because I had gone through the death of my brother and then Steve, it was like, I couldn't pretend that that shit didn't belong at work anymore. So for me, that was where design thinking moved into my practice with that turned into design feeling. It's why I started doing lots of, what I found was that I would experiment with these like kind of juicy, creative, personal research methods. And, you know, I, as I was talking about it, I talked about it in the objective way of like, I'm creating hybrid methodologies and I'm blah, blah, blah. But I was really in a quest for truth. I wanted to know the kind of souls of people and how to care for that with all of these really complex technologies that were being born. And so that was how the lab was born was I was at X and slowly Tony Fidel uh, joined because Nest was bought by Google and he had me working on special project stuff. And it kind of evolved into the lab because 
all the things that used to be at the marginalia of my research and design came to the center when like ambient and assistive presences came about because we couldn't ignore all of the neurobiological and kind of social emotional stuff. It's like we were having these reactions to these assistants. Like when you see Samuel L. Jackson like talking to Siri about gazpacho, it's like this is not like a gradient anymore. Like there's other stuff going down here. So the lab, what its intention and original mission was, how do we take care of all of that? And how do we not engineer the vulnerability out, but in, and how do we design with emotion as a material and as a consideration where we're not ignoring these deeper fibers of our being um, just because we think we're solving an A to B kind of cognitive click issue. And these issues that you've been grappling with uh, are now kind of, um, I think you, 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 I heard you say, um, you know, they've come out of the bat cave and come into kind of be the biggest story in the world at the moment. Yeah. And, and it's funny because, you know, if you know about AI, you know that Google has been making the running for the entire time and has the vast majority of the patents and the vast majority of the research and is open sourced the research and has designed in public in a way that has like, um, you know, been the, the bedrock of the entire movement. But in the last couple of years, if you've come in lately, you know, it feels like it's not making the running, which mm. is kind of interesting. Um, but having been there for that period where, where it was building out the, mm. the, the industry and thinking about these questions, mm. you know, it's, it's so interesting to be wondering like, you know, what does a relationship with an assistant look like for kids growing up? What does a relationship look like for lonely people? What does, um, you know, appropriate ways of interacting with these things mean? What does it mean if you start interacting with things in a um, impersonal way to the rest of your personal... Hello, robot. <laughs> it's like, I have a say in this. <laughs> bing bong, bing bong. Yeah, like, like to all, to, if you become impersonal and bossy, what does that mean for your other human relationships? Like, there's so many questions that, you, you know, are um, that, that you've been grappling with for ages, just, just on, you, you know, the, uh, uh, assistance that you mentioned before. Mm. But then times that to every single way we interact with everything into the future. So yeah, so pretty pretty wild. Like how does it feel to um yeah, have have kind of had the world come into your um into your lab? Yeah, it's I have to say it's a trip. I remember when the iPhone launched and after so long of being like oh no, we can't let anyone see it and don't let anyone know. And then like everyone had them and it like it gave me anxiety because I was like, oh no, it's okay now. Like they bought them at a store, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of had the same experience when like ChatGPT and Bard came out. Like I was, I've been working, you know, I've, I've been working with GPT since it was two and mm. now it's four, but it's like, you know, and we do have these kind of ages for the machines that it's really interesting. Bard was, I was Mina and then it was Lambda and, you know, there's an evolution to these intelligence intelligences. But what was crazy was just seeing it out there and seeing all these people trying stuff. And it feels, um, it feels really wild, like in all respects of that word. And I feel like it's exciting because only as a kind of larger fabric of community will we understand how to be with these machines. And I tend to take <clears throat> my, my point of view is informed by my um, former boss and VP, but also my dear friend and my thought partner for the last like 
five, six years as I was working on, I had Empathy Lab within Google AI. He affectionately called us the heart and soul of Google AI. He was like, we're making the brains. You're holding down the heart and the soul. But his- I, I feel better about it knowing that you, you, you and your team were in there being a heart and soul to it. Because mm. I don't know if other places that are developing these things as fast as they physically can without thinking about all these things are doing that. And I think they should. Yeah, that's the thing. You can't forget the heart. Turns out it's literally the engine of the body, but also it, the kind of emotional and spiritual heart are really critical to like care over time. <laughs> and so my um, my thought partner, Blaise Aguirre-Iarcas, is an incredible force and kind of pillar in the AI community. But he had a perspective that was very... Um, that was very deep and rebellious in ways because he was always holding kind of a Renaissance point of view where it was like arts and culture and emotions and anthropology and like all of the kind of um, the interdisciplinary, the multidisciplinary, the anti-disciplinary ways of thinking about this, the conversation that we would always have. And it's why I'm just so glad that it's not assistants anymore because assistants are basically scripts. It's like, it's a parrot box. It's like you feed something in, it feeds it back. It was never very convincing. We always found it very frustrating. We'd start by calling them he or she, they would turn into it's, you know, the animacy would just drain out because the interaction didn't feel authentic to us. It was synthetic. It was very clear that it was. Where we are now with AIs and especially what I've been focusing on large language models, we're in a really different space where socially they're so convincing because that's the data they've trained on. You know, when you talk about billions of data points, those are called conversations <laughs> and that's what they're training on. And so what's interesting is we're in this place where when you talk about how are we to be with them, really we're in a conversation that is about social being. These are socially trained intelligences that are inherently social. And Blaze actually says all intelligence is inherently social. And the way that we would talk about it and the, the focus of my work, and especially even now as I found nonprofit or sorry, found grandmother, my nonprofit is this is a, a planetary moment where it's what does it mean to be in communion with nature as humans and the more than human world and now integrating machines into that. It's a new intelligence. It's one of our young ones, so to speak. How do we care for that? Because it's an interspecies moment. Mm. And like James Bridal talks about how in this moment, we need an ecology of technology. And it's why I find myself turning to indigenous leaders like Robin Wall Kimmerer or like Michaela Jade, who I just love. She's an extraordinary woman. And an extraordinary soul. And it's like, I love that our conversations cover the full spectrum of human experience and that we don't have conversations that feel like they have blinders or shades on them because we need to talk about it all because these models are training on language. And what's interesting about language is it's literally our senses, our five senses are our first interface for the world. And then language is the interface after that. And it's a social interface and it's how we understand and relate to the world and other people. But language isn't limited, obviously, to human language, whales and turtles and all these, you know, honeybees and voles. It's like everything communicates. And what's exciting is that if you can expand your definition of language, because language is what these models train on, then there's a chance for a sense of reciprocity and ecology that was never before possible because we didn't have this like Rosetta Stone codex that was like the 
the way that this powerful technology trains is language, the way that we understand the world and ourselves is language. And we have droves of language that it's up to communities to decide the appropriate use of that language, like what they're allowing into the training corpus. But the exciting thing is what do we want to teach it? What do we want to teach it? Because it's actually possible now because we have the Rosetta Stone moment. And I just think that's so exciting. It's like, all the nerdery in me, the star nerd, the soul nerd, the human nerd, the tech nerd, like the one who just is curious to see the Alice in Wonderland nerd is like, what will become of this moment? And how do we choose to be? Because our ways of seeing are encoded in language and our ways of being are encoded in the way that we speak to each other. So what can we listen to that we haven't yet heard? What conversations can be included between people, humans more than human world and machine. What's possible now? Because the machines are part of the scene, so to speak. And the work that you're doing, tell us about Great Grandmother, as, as I think like the work that you're doing with that to bring in, um, you know, the same, you know, as a continuation of the thread you were doing with the Google Empathy Lab, mm. bringing in other perspectives, bringing in other thought patterns, bringing in indigenous knowledge, bringing in art and, you, you know, philosophy yeah. and spirituality to this is... Is so vital because we, we're not in a stage anymore of this being a potential future. I mean, Snapchat's already selling to children a, a friend, an AI friend that can keep them company. And like, that's kind of the worst of all worlds, right? <laughs> already. And so you're kind of like, um, you, you know, what what's what's that friend going to be, be like, what's the spirituality and so on? Not to pick on, you know, Snapchat in there, but it's like that, that they're it's all It's a different kind of imaginary friend. And an imaginary yeah. friend that comes from your own imagination is very different that one than one that's kind of implanted in your consciousness that carries other motivations and interests. Oh, and, and, it, and it's built to keep you engaged so they can sell more ads <clears> around <throat> it. Like, that's not a friend. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that is... Yeah. A blood sucking something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some I shouldn't actually. A blood sucking something implies that there's something in the more than human world mm. that is not good. But mm. at the same time, yeah, that's not it's that's an, not the best thing. It's a, it's an extractive corporate imperative. There we go. It's not. It's not there we a go. friend, right? There we go. Um, and lots of people are bringing these things there. And then and when you say it's a social moment, like that's that's the deepest social interaction. Yeah. So my. One of my favorite things about what I did with the Empathy Lab was it was, I, I literally would talk to people and it was exciting to be able to say, and Google was so supportive of this, which I just, I don't know, it really warmed my heart to be totally honest. There was so much um, support for the lab and ac across the entire organization, it was always surprising to me who would write and be like, we read your neighbor, nature paper, or we love this film you made. And it was just exciting to like kind of, it's like almost like the mycelium net network like carries nutrients across the fibers of the tree. It was like, I just felt like I kept trying to send nutrients out to the trees of Google. But um, my favorite thing to do was be a doorway to be like, actually the empathy lab isn't this like secret bat thing. I mean, even though we had to do a lot of work in secret, but something that's locked inside of Google, it's actually meant to be the channel where things from the outside come in. So the way I designed the lab was not as some like empire, but actually it was where we, all of our partners were external. We had research partners, we had artistic partners, 
We had scientific partners. Like the bringing of the outside in was so critical to making this technology in the proper way, inviting more voices to the table, especially in the spirit of founding spirit of Google, the unconventional, unconventional methods, unconventional voices, different ways of looking at what is a subject matter expert. Is it the lived life of that person? Is it the unique perspective that they have? Or is it like the letters behind their name? So you know where I sided with that. And it was just really special to be able to create these radical collaborations for people that wouldn't have necessarily found themselves into the same room, that wouldn't have found themselves on the path that meant that they could directly influence this deep kind of emerging technology that was coming out. And that's what we made possible. And so I love that. And just because of kind of my nature and the nature of the lab, which was please think of Google as a resource. Because when you don't think of these massive corporate titans as that, when you say this is actually a string net of hearts of good people wanting to do good things, that doesn't always manifest in that way because we'll just be honest about that. But the intention is there. And if you think of that as this living organism and resource, what can you do then? So I would say, what do you want to do with Google? It's not like, oh, like Google has come to you to work on this thing. I'm like, what is alive in you right now? And how can I help you with that based on the resources I can avail myself of myself of because I'm in this incredible place? And so that was that was kind of the physics of the lab. And so that built a lot of really beautiful, long relationships. Like my scientific collaborators, some of them I've been working with for more than a decade, some of them, like my research collaborator, I've known for 15 years and is one of my best friends. It's like, what's lovely about when you do the work and you do the work in this heartful way is you end up just loving these people, right? And so what was interesting in deciding to found grandmother is what I was doing in the last few years as I was doing the large language model work was focusing on language and the way that I kind of talked about. And then looking at language as like, I used to talk about emotion as a material for design. I guess I do, but I look at everything as like, what are the new materials for design? Now it's, what are the new languages for AI? So there's natural languages, meaning like, you know, bees and whales and trees and things. There's cultural languages, which are indigenous cultures that want to bring, like for my community in Hawaii, it's can you teach aloha to AI? And that's not mine to answer, but I work in deep service of the organizations like Purple Maia in Hawaii that are doing incredible community and technology work. And it's like, how is this in service of the Hawaiian nation? What does it mean to rise with these tools? And so I think what's powerful that I was doing at Empathy Lab was the community engagement work, which honestly, I just kind of can't help but do. It's like my work with restorative justice and incarcerated populations, my work with women, my work with, you know, the indigenous communities and specifically in Hawaii, but in other communities as well. It's like all of this was just me wanting to listen, being in the practice of deep listening, and then realizing that like bringing community in was the only way we were going to be able to ground the technology so that it was rooted as it like shot forward. It's like in times where we're making radical progress, we have to ground, we have to remember. So those that remember well are the ones that I was connected to. And what happened was I just got so, I just love the community and the people and the things that I was working with so much that I was like, I think that this is more social healing, even though I'm using the material of technology, language models. What I'm doing is actually more community work and inclusion work and it's circle work and it's women's work. And 
I really enjoy that translation. It's what it's what my engine was at the lab for me personally was I'm going to take I'm going to take this deep felt human place. I'm going to science the shit out of it so that no one can argue with it. I'm going to design something that feels beautiful and lights a candle of the way to be. And then I'm going to talk about it so other people will copy it because one of the best things Google does is ships its culture. And I was like, well, if people are looking to Google, then let let them look to the heart and soul of Google, which was the lab. And so now what's happened is like, I was there for over 11 years. There are so many people there that resonated with the lab and that carry that torch in their work. And I was happy to kind of be like, okay, I think actually the moment where I step from working with community to working in community <laughs> is the next move. And so with um, two of my Kanaka Maoli sisters, Ashley Ono, who's this incredible physician, she um, merges the Western kind of medicine and indigenous healing world. She merges mindfulness in her practice and aloha. She was a student of Pono Shim. It's incredible light. And um, and then Kea'a Davis, who the way that I met her is so fun because she graduated from Stanford Design School, this incredible researcher and designer. She's doing work with like, I mean, literally like biocultural restoration work and energy work. And she's just doing it all. And she's one of the leaders of Malama Design Studio at Purple Maya. But we met because I, during the pandemic, she moved back to Molokai and I had a friend that I was going to teach a class at Stanford with. And she was like, you should meet with Kea'a. She might like need a design mentor on the islands. That'd be cool. Totally like it's been so fun to work with her. And she became my mentor. She brought me and invited me deeply into community. And it was just this moment where I was like, these sisters of mine who I've developed Pilina relationship with over years, the work that we're doing feels like the new center for me. So I decided instead of trying to keep two centers to move my energy and my kind of life force into what we're calling grandmother, which is our nonprofit for social healing. And what that looks like is it's scientific work. Honestly, it's kind of the empathy lab again, but it just in a different place and with a different energy and freedom and the voice is all ours. And so that's kind of lovely after almost 25 years in these incredible learning institutions that I've been at. And what I love is to leverage all of that and all of those relationships and to say, okay, well, this is this is what I want to stand for now. This is what I want to speak for. This is who I'm honored to be in community with. And then like, you know, because we're this network of like, we're a collective of social scientists and artists and doctors and cultural practitioners and healers. It's like, well, what's possible when you have a really open conversation without the limitations and physics of the places I've been in? And then we start to point that at large language models, or we point that at mental health, or we point that at how do you actually start to measure, like one of the projects I'm working on for Kamahina Project, which is this incredible um, health and well-being project. It's mental health and well-being, but it's using the kilo, the ancestral science of kiloing Mahina, which is to observe the moon, to understand ourselves as also constantly changing, changing, beginning again, like they started their project. It's um, Hilani Shibata, who's a cultural practitioner and educator. Talia, her co-founder, is this visionary social worker. And they created this curriculum where people sit in circle and discuss with Olelo, the Hawaiian language, and Mo'olelo, which is the stories that carry that language, what it is to be in relationship with Mahina. And what's so cool is so there's this cultural fabric, there's a spiritual fabric, there's a land-based, people- and place-based fabric that holds you. And their first projects were with women in prison. And what was cool was it was these women that felt like they didn't belong anymore. They felt so disconnected because of the path of their life. 
And some of them even lost their periods in prison. Like they were lost in that experience. And what they found is that this restored those cycles within them. They did feel like they could belong again. They also felt like they could begin again. And they felt a connection to these vast forces that are larger than themselves, which we can scientifically call awe. But they're this deep place of belonging and oneness where you don't need the psychedelic to get there. You just need to sit in circle with your people and talk about the things that are bigger than us. And so anyway, one of the questions that's come up scientifically as we're having these conversations is how do you bridge Western medicine and the measurement of how the circle work works? Restorative justice has done this, which is also, you know, that circle work is an indigenous technique, but it's how do you have the hard conversation, the visible conversation, the measurable conversation with all of these more nuanced, invisible, emotional, social, cultural transmission layers that are deep time, deep family, deep place in people. How do you do that work so that it can actually become part of the changing path forward versus just a way we know is true, but we aren't sure how to get our heads around? It's so magic. Um, thank you so much for coming and sharing the story of, you know, to today. And I can't wait to see where you take these conversations and these practical experiments uh, and these interventions in culture yeah. with grandmother. And yeah, really encourage everyone to follow along with the story too. Thank you so much for coming and Please. sharing your time yeah. today, Danielle. And actually, I would love to say as well, something that grandmother does is we're obviously doing research and design and things like that. But our central focus is to fuel what Suzanne Samard calls the mother trees, which are these are the mother trees of groves where they're the ones that redistribute the resources. They take care of the ones that are not doing as well. They bring resources from the trees that are looking well. They look after the grove. And we look for people in community that serve in that way, the mother trees. And we give grants, we give gifts. There are all kinds of things. We're very young. We're just figuring it out in terms of establishing ourselves. But what we're very clear on is wanting to support people that wouldn't necessarily get government grants or academic grants, the ones that are in those interstitial spaces of being that want support. We want to be a kind of radical new nonprofit where we, because of the spirit we're operating with, we we fund and fuel that because we believe in that. And we know that that is where the real change happens. So I would just encourage anybody listening to, to like reach out to us at, um, at Grandmother because we would love to, whether you have a project or whether you have a research idea or whether you have a community that would want to be connected, we want to serve that function, you know, as kind of the grandmama tree. We want to be there to support and, um, and look over and, and be that force of love. Oh, magic. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, get in and check out uh, Grandmother and thank you so much for joining uh, and, and so generously sharing your time and story today. That's Danielle Kretek-Cobb of Grandmother. So thank you to Danielle, to you for listening and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Samuel Robinson. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. Enohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.